0: such a great privilege to praise the Lord together and, of course, to study His Word. What a thrill for us. So take your Bibles, if you would, in this remaining time in our service. And let's look at Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And now we are introduced to what will become, really, the, the reigning divide between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. And of course that divide, that hostility is growing because Jesus is making claims that if he were a mere mortal would be outlandish. If Jesus were merely a man, the claims that he is making would frankly be over the top. They would be those claims of a lunatic, a fool. You remember that when he was arguing with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, if you've ever studied that chapter, he had said, you look at things according to the flesh. In other words, you can't see the inside of man, implying, of course, that he could. And then when they said, don't we say rightly that you have a demon? He said, no, I don't have a demon. The reason you don't believe me is because you don't have the life of God in you. You know how I can prove it? Because you don't believe me and I'm the one the Father sent. And then they said, we have Abraham as our father. And he said, listen, Abraham rejoiced to see my arrival. And they said, now we know that you're a liar because you're not yet 50 years old and yet you know Abraham. And he said in John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was, I am. They picked up stones to stone. And these were... If they were made by a mere mortal, these claims would be outlandish. Who is Jesus? And just who does he think he is to make such claims? What he's claiming, what he is doing, and what he is teaching the people. These are things that only belong to deity. They only belong to someone who is God. And does he imagine for even a moment, the Pharisees were, of course, thinking, does he imagine even for a moment that we would bow down to worship him? That was a terrible thing for a man to bow down and worship another man. Cornelius tried to do it in Acts chapter 10, bowed down to worship Peter. And Peter said, get up. I, too, am just a man. Do you remember that John, when the apocalypse, the revelation was being given to him, in Revelation chapter 22, he tried to worship the angel that had been giving him the revelation. And the angel himself said some remarkable things. He said, don't do that. For I, too, am a fellow slave of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. You worship God. It was a... Shocking thing for a man to ask for worship. It was a shocking thing for a man to try to bow down to another man for worship. It was even a shocking thing for a man to try to bow down to an angel. Angels wouldn't claim to be God unless they are fallen angels. It's interesting that Jesus never told anyone to stop worshiping him. Remember what he told Satan in the temptation uh, in the wilderness? Matthew 4:10 he told Satan you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve and yet Jesus himself never stopped anyone from worshiping him is that not clear that he's saying i am god this is where the hostility point begins to reign and what you find in Luke Five in the narrative before us is Luke's introduction to this hostility that is coming against Jesus. I've already read the text, but let's begin to meet the players in the scenario that we find in verse 17 running through verse 26. You find this group of men that are named here in verse 17, and we'll just call them the delegation of incriminators. They are a delegation of incriminators. Verse 17, one day, Jesus was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Now stop right there. You have a group named here. In fact, later on, you'll see that the scribes are mentioned down later in the text. It is clear here that you have... um, Scribes and Pharisees. The scribes are called teachers of the law here in verse 17. And there's a little bit of a difference. It's just important to note, at least generally speaking, that the Pharisees were the sect that stressed the strict outward observance of the law. They were the enforcers of the the rabbinical traditions and regulations. They were sort of acting like the gatekeepers who protected the law from those who might violate it. They were well known for their self-righteous arrogance. They were well known for their formalism. They publicly and often flaunted their observance of all the ceremonies and the fastings and the almsgivings and the long prayers in the public squares and even tithing. The scribes are a little bit different. They are the sort of the professional uh, students of the Old Testament law. They were the authorities in the exposition of that law, and they were the teachers in that sense. The most prominent of their number would have been in the Sanhedrin, the 70 that led the Jewish leadership from Jerusalem. Most of the scribes were also Pharisees, but it isn't true that it was also the other way around. Uh, a lot of the Pharisees were not In fact, distinguished as scribes. And that's why verse 21 separates them out as scribes and Pharisees. They were a distinct group. That's their background. That's their pedigree. They are coming here to where Jesus is in the surrounding areas of the Galilee because they are plotting. Notice, they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Listen, this is not a fascination with Jesus this is not to admire his work what in the world are these guys up to well they're not coming to document the miracles and teachings of Jesus as if to say this might be the messiah this isn't sort of a messianic fact finding tour to sort of testify that their messiah had arrived it might have been made to look like it but it wasn't that at all This was not just a delegation from the local area. The entire group was an organized group under the direction of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And you remember, Jesus had already incited the the first clash with the leadership in Jerusalem the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees in Jerusalem, when he cleansed the temple. John's Gospel records in John 2 that when he headed back to Jerusalem for the Passover, he had so much zeal, he just came in and he wrecked the Temple Mount's little business racket that was going on. And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, John's Gospel says many believed in his name observing the signs which he was doing. He was doing miracles in Jerusalem and he was disrupting their business. He was disrupting what they were putting in the coffers. His power and his claims were the hottest topic all over the area of Judea in that first 18 months of ministry in those surrounding districts. Nicodemus came to him by night because the Sanhedrin had already begun to have issues with what Jesus was saying, and they couldn't deny the signs that he was doing. They never took issue with that, but they had a real problem, so much so that Nicodemus came to Jesus in the nighttime And so when John the Baptist was arrested, you remember John four says that Jesus said, I'm heading back to the Galilean region. And that's precisely what he did. And that's where we find him here. So what you see now is a delegation of of uh, the central seat of the nation of Israel. They're already hostile. This was a concerted and very formal process. They were going to investigate. They were going to gather evidence and eventually find some serious breach. That's what they're after. The whole group traveled to convene in Jesus' hometown. They know they're going to see Him. They know they're going to hear His teachings. They know, going to, they know they're going to see some things happen. And they want to scrutinize and expose Him as someone who's against their law. They're not here to admire Him. And notice their pretense. Verse 17, They were sitting there. What does that mean? Jesus is teaching. They're sitting there. Can you imagine the size of the delegation? I don't know how many there are. Probably quite a few. It says they're from the surrounding villages of Galilee and then Judea and then Jerusalem itself. So you've got some pretty big entourage. They didn't come incognito, they brought their fanfare with them, they brought their robes and all of their righteous pretense. But it's all a ruse. It's just phony. They just want to make a case out of any small thing they can turn into a charge. That's the delegation. Now we come to the unfolding of the text. And basically what we find here is a showdown. A showdown of authorities. Notice the end of verse 17. The power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. The first thing we noticed was the divine power Was being sovereignly ordained to fit the circumstance. Remember that though Jesus is fully God, he's also fully man. And so he submitted himself to the spirit of God. He humbled himself by submitting his humanity to the power and sovereign direction of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing reality about the God man in his humility. When he came to earth in his incarnation, just like those whom he saves, he was an example for us of someone who submitted to his heavenly Father and obeyed his Father's commandments and submitted himself to the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. He walked by the Spirit. He trusted the Spirit. He honored his Father by yielding to the Spirit's every command, John 10.15 says. 15.10 rather. And the power of the Spirit was with him, and it was upon him... It was present for him to perform healings. So Jesus is about to be the lightning rod, and the divine power of God is the contention point. Because if Jesus has the power to heal, in the way that he's about to heal, then he must be sent by God, and therefore represents the authority of God. And if his message is calling people to repent, and to believe him, then that message is directly from God, and therefore is binding, and that becomes the issue. And so this, beloved, is a showdown of authorities. It is a showdown of authorities that is provoked by a circumstance that the Father Himself ordained, and the Son uses it as an open confrontation. Now, by the time you get to verse 18, that is the setup for this imminent moment where a sinner is pardoned. Notice verse 18. And behold, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went upon the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher right in the center in front of Jesus. Now listen, God sets the scene here. We understand the situation just from a simple surface reading of the text. The man is paralyzed. Matthew and Mark's account use paralytic. Luke is the one that spreads it out a little bit, probably some physician's uh, thought going in here a little bit, sort of the pathological reference. He was paralyzed, a man who actually was paralyzed. We don't know when he was paralyzed. It might have been many, many, many years ago. But ultimately, he is paralyzed and atrophied from it. No doubt there is some muscular deterioration because it seems to indicate that he's small and frail enough for four men to walk him up the outside stairs that lead to the rooftop. And Luke, by the way, uses the diminutive term of bed uh, twice in this text. It's called a mattress. Mark Mark's translation is sometimes mattress. Here, Luke calls it a bed and then twice calls it a tiny bed, a little bed. This is a very small bed with a very small broken down body on it he's atrophied paralyzed all of his body can't feel what normally we feel it doesn't respond Now, Mark tells us that many were gathered there so that there was no longer room, even near the door. And then Jesus was speaking the word to them. So Mark gives a little more detail about the crowd. Everybody's pressed in. And listen, there is no way that this crowd is going to be disrupted by a few guys behind them asking them to clear a path. It's not going to happen because everyone wanted their spot in order to personally see and hear the miracle worker. You just weren't going to miss it. You wanted to see it. You wanted to be stunned by it. And who knows, maybe there are some in the crowd that are going to be drawn to God. In this particular text, they're just not letting these four guys and this sad person on the bed, not letting them through with some sort of path. So, very simple. The four guys make their way to the rooftop via some sort of outside wall access up top of the house. Fairly typical Stairs that kind of went up the side wall, up to the rooftop where, you know, anything. Life was conducted. It was still living space up there being a flat sort of mud or uh, sort of a hardened stone roof. In fact, it says that they fastened or it, it indicates that they fastened some ropes and they unroofed the rooftop where Jesus was. Mark's Gospel uses a verb here that means they tore through the tile. It's not as though there was a prepared place. It's not as though they simply removed a couple of tiles. Uh, scholars are hilarious to me. You know, when you read them, they say, oh, this can't be possible that this even happened because all that stuff would have fallen down on the people. And yeah, they, there's just no mention of that. It's just somebody's just making this up. I'm thinking, really? That's, that's what you're going to go after? To, to discredit a text? Mark simply says they dug through... And of course, Matthew and Luke's gospel says they just removed it. So clearly, they took some time, got the guy up to the roof, and notice Luke's detail here. Right in the middle of the room, or in the midst of this discussion. So somewhere, Jesus was either teaching in the round in the middle of the room, he was crowded around, everyone was crowded around him, or he was up against the wall, but But they knew that from where he was teaching, if they peeled the tiles from the roof, they could drop him down right in the middle. And Luke makes it a point to mention right down in front of Jesus. So it was a straight shot from where they peeled the roof back and they dropped him down. Fastened some sort of rope and lowered him into the room. Now, this is just some of the greatest staging on the part of the Lord by his sovereignty. If there's going to be a showdown of authorities, this is not going to be done in some back room there's going to be a showdown between the Pharisees and Jesus, this is not going to be some sort of backroom interaction that can be altered by someone's agenda later on. Absolutely not. God wants this gospel confrontation with false religion to happen right in front of all the witnesses. There's no denying. Jesus will not be ignored. He is provocative wherever there's a false gospel. Beloved, listen, just as an implication or footnote, that is precisely why the idea of removing the alienation of the gospel is ridiculous when it comes to ministry philosophies. Whenever there's a false gospel, it is urgent for people's souls. You don't remove the alienation. You don't get in the back room and soften things. You don't keep the offense of the gospel away from the sinner. You provoke it. You speak the truth. You be as loving as anyone should be and could be by telling them their need. Alienation is up to the Lord. Jesus was provocative whenever these men were around because they had a false gospel. They were teaching people what they themselves falsely held to. And that was that you could work your way to God. You could be righteous enough. God would somehow take a mix of your faith and a mix of your works and would accept you on the basis of your own intrinsic righteousness. An infusion of your own belief and your own good works. Listen. The pragmatic movement of evangelicalism has led to the church being filled up with people, hundreds of them, thousands of them, who believe that going to church and filling out a card and listening to somebody drone on and singing a few songs and then cutting out for lunch will be enough. And it's not. It is a false hope. Nothing you do Nothing you do of your own self is acceptable to God. All our righteousness is filthy rags. And if you trust in even a moment of it to make you acceptable, rather than put your entire person, life, eternity on the mercy of Christ, you will have no hope. No wonder Jesus was provocative. No wonder in the sovereign staging of God, he would not be ignored. No wonder. And here, here's a tender group of guys. You got a crowd in there, they're all packed in, and they won't make a path. So these four friends I mean, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say anything about what Jesus says to them as a group. He says something to the man on the bed. But interestingly enough, notice how Luke mentions the next verse about their faith. Verse 20, seeing their faith. I don't know what conversation went on, but it was very, very interesting. Maybe perhaps they were thinking, well, let's come back another day. And the man said, absolutely not. This is the man I must meet. Or maybe all five of them were able to say, look, we're not stopping. We know that this man can bring hope to us. We know there was at least one among the five. Because it says that Jesus saw their faith. It was God drawing the heart. We're told that by Luke because Luke wants to describe what happens when Someone persists in getting to the Savior. This paralyzed man and his friends were not superficial in their persistent effort. According to Jesus, they had come in the grace and brokenness that saves. Unlike the crowd, perhaps everyone in the crowd, who was there and interested, these men came in the grace and brokenness that saves. And with divine omniscience, Jesus sees their faith and responds to it. So this man had obviously been imploring his compassionate friends to take him to Jesus. And it wasn't superficial. He didn't just want a physical healing because according to the narrative, his was a penitent cry for mercy for his life of sin. He obviously wanted to confess his guilt and follow whatever the Master commanded. And it's obvious he longed to be physically healed, of course. He came to the healer. But the physical healing wasn't the issue. By what Jesus says, we know the man came as a sinner deserving nothing. So clearly as the man comes, he is being drawn by God. And you see humility here, which self-indicts. You come to Christ, you've got to self-indict. When you come to Christ, you have to say, I I, I deserve everything God says in his word that a sinner deserves. Everything. I deserve it all. And this man came in real faith. Jesus said, the text says he saw their faith. So there was self-denial. Total, real faith in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He can give me what I need spiritually, let alone physically. So there was a self-indictment, the humility of repentance here. There was a self-denial, the entrustment of faith here. And there was self-sacrifice. There was submission. A submissive heart. God set the scene. God drew the heart. And then, seeing their faith, Jesus said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. What a moment. This moment had all kinds of things coming in on it. This is a loaded moment. This is a jam-packed moment. We know that Jesus is provoking a confrontation here. Because instead of an immediate physical healing as he'd been doing night and day for every disease and physical problem. I mean, they were bringing diseased people from the lands all around, and he was just healing them all day long, a word or a touch, healing every kind of disease and and troubled heart and demon-possessed person. And it just went on and on to the point of exhaustion night and day. But here, Jesus sees a paralytic in front of him, and instead of physically healing him, he forgives him. This is a deliberate provocation. Jesus bypasses the man's paralyzed condition, desperate condition. And if you weren't a man of faith, if you weren't coming with a drawn heart, you might get a little incensed. What do you mean my sins are forgiven? Don't you see my body? I'm on my last moment here. Can't you give me new legs? Even coming here, I've heard nothing but person after person talk about their diseases that are gone. That's why I came. We didn't peel the roof back so that you could give me some spiritual platitude. You know, if he'd come with a superficial heart, that's precisely what he might have said. No, he's, he's just experienced what you and I experienced when we came to Christ. What what happened? How do you describe it? Guilt is gone. I, I don't know how to describe it. I know that faith came and I know that the truth filled my heart, and I know the love of the Holy Spirit be, began to change the way immediately I would think about Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And the guilt and the weight of all that stuff that I brought here to this moment is, is gone. That's what's happening to him. In that very moment, Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Psalm 32 says, blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, whose transgression is covered. Blessed, happy. This man is happy. He's not He's not received anything for his physical body, but his heart is free. And this is a loaded moment because what Jesus said here was nuclear. Divine authority was declared in one statement. Jesus claimed in one statement to be able to do something that only the God of the universe has the authority to do. And listen... To the Pharisees sitting around in the secrecy of their hearts, this is outlandish. Notice, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, Jesus doesn't know what they're saying if they're mumbling to one another, but He knows what's going on in the heart. But Jesus, aware of, Of their reasonings. What is he aware of? He knows exactly what he provoked. He knows exactly what he intended to deliberately stir up. They are going to accuse him of blasphemy. Now, very often people aren't even really understanding the sin of blasphemy. In the Old Testament, blasphemy consisted of of defaming the divine nature by taking the divine names upon your lips with profane intentions. So you might pretend to worship God with your mouth, but inside you had no intention of worshiping God. It was all about self. That was one form of blasphemy forbidden in the Old Testament. According to Levitical law, it also was attributing the divine to something human. Look, if only God could do something and you uh, attributed that to human beings, that would be a way of blaspheming God. Or it's opposite. If you attributed that which is merely human to God. Some sin, some evil. When you think God is wrong, when you think God's unfair, that's attributing sinful things to holy God. That is, according to Levitical law, blasphemy and back then the consequence was immediate death, Leviticus 24:16. But if you were one of the elite in Judaism at the time, you understood that fully. You understood what the law was and what it consisted of. So you know the implications for committing it. So here, here is the Pharisee uh, standing in front of Jesus and he's heard Jesus say, "I forgive you, your sins are forgiven." And you're standing in the presence of someone then who claims to be God. You know he's just claimed to be God. Absolutely. And you charge him with blasphemy, but then on the heels of the charge, you make no investigation to see if it's true. You make no investigation. How was blasphemy determined? Listen, if a mere mortal claimed to be God, the only way to charge them with blasphemy is to prove that they're not God. That's how the charge would be true. But the charge of blasphemy couldn't be applied to someone who claims to be God while giving irrefutable proof to support the claim. In fact, we don't have time to go there, but in Matthew 26, when Jesus was in front of Caiaphas, Caiaphas puts him under oath. In Matthew 26, 63-65, Jesus kept silent, the text says, And the high priest said to him, I adjure you, I charge you by the living God that you tell us whether you're the Christ, the Son of God, which would be a claim to deity. Jesus said to him, you said it yourself. In other words, he didn't disagree with it. He said, you said it, and nevertheless, I'm telling you even more that hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And he's quoting Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, and it says in the text that the high priest tore his robes and he said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you've now heard the blasphemy. Well, I ask you, Caiaphas was the high priest. How could he claim that Jesus' mere statement was blasphemy when he hadn't even considered The proof. In fact, Caiaphas just says, we don't need any witnesses. Oh, you mean Jesus of Nazareth claims to be the Son of God? And you just declare it blasphemy? You don't need any witnesses? Really? The guy has literally proven over and over again that he is who he says he is. Tearing the robe was intended to signify the most angry display of outrage just prior to stoning Well listen, if blasphemy is the sin of defaming God by attributing what is divine to that which is human and if a mortal claims to be God then the only way you could charge him with blasphemy is if you have proven that the claim to deity is false. And in the case of Jesus Caiaphas should never have ignored the witnesses and the testimony because by then the stunning number of proofs the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled, the words that he spoke, the flawless life he lived, and even just looking into and investigating a few miracles. He couldn't be charged with blasphemy because everything he said was true. So why were the leaders of Israel saying that the search for proof is pointless? I'll tell you why. Because the Jews had already concluded Listen, Jesus, You're no Lord over us. And there, beloved, is the showdown of authorities. There it is. Jesus Christ is the only Lord and Master over every soul. And the ones who refuse to submit to His mastery over their soul they will face the judge of the universe and one day bow. Without wanting to, they will bow. Notice the omniscience of Jesus when He openly counters them. Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier? To say your sins have been forgiven you or to say rise and walk? He sets up a dilemma. When Jesus made this statement, the the religious henchmen from Jerusalem should have been frightened out of their wits because he knew what they were reasoning. I mean, they should have thought, how did he know? How did he know what we're thinking? It's interesting that he could see into the shattered heart of the penitent crippled man, and he could also see into the self-made, stiff-necked, unbelieving heart of these Jewish leaders. How ironic. The man who confesses that he's spiritually crippled in real faith gets spiritually healed of his spiritual disease, and the ones who think that they're already spiritually healthy, they remain spiritually crippled. Sounds like John 9 Verse 41 and the blind man. Because you say you see. Because you say you have no blindness. Because you say you're already going to get to God on your own. Your sin remains. Listen, Jesus can see into the heart. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, listen, Hebrews 4.13. You're not hiding from God. Everything is open and laid bare before the one to whom we must all answer. Read it. It's very clear. Jesus said in John 10, listen, what is done in secret will be revealed on the last day. Somebody persecutes you in secret. Somebody slanders you and libels you in secret. Someone hates the gospel and thinks they're getting away with it in a dark alley. It's not going to happen. It's all going to be revealed So Jesus sets up the test by which this claim to authority is proved or discredited. I love this. All right, you men be the judge. Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? And by the way, let me just note something. Jesus, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, which is easier to do. He doesn't say, which is easier to do. He's not asking, hey, which is easier, actually to heal or actually to absolve guilt? He's not asking that. Both of those things, either to heal or to absolve guilt, would require divine intervention, divine power, divine authority. But even the disciples were at times given power to heal. But they were never given power to absolve guilt. Ever. So he's not asking which is easier to do. If you were asking about what's easier to do, the answer would have been that it's easier to do a temporal healing than an eternal forgiveness. Much easier to do a temporal healing than an eternal forgiveness if you're God. Both would require that you're God, but clearly eternal forgiveness is the eternal issue, not physical healing and temporal life. He's not asking that. He's saying, which is easier to say? It's actually in the text. Which is easier to say? And so now the issue of authority comes to the forefront. It's much easier to say that you've absolved someone's sins because no one, listen, no one this side of your death ever knows If it really was true. Listen, that's what makes works religions so devastating. Because someone goes to some emissary, some worldly figure, some person on earth, some human, some priest somewhere, and they promise you that through your sacraments and your rituals and your confessions to those priests, there is the forgiveness of God, the absolution of guilt. But the Scriptures teach that by no flesh will ever anyone be justified. You'll never be made acceptable by any human works. Galatians 2.16 And no human being can absolve you of guilt. That's the whole point here. Jesus is setting up the test. Oh, you think a human can't absolve guilt? Well, it's easy to say. Whenever you go into a little confessional booth... Some false religion and some priest tells you that he has the authority to pardon your sin before a holy God. He needs to be able to prove that he's almighty God in the flesh right then and there. I'd open that little window and say, where's your power? Only God can forgive sin. That's what the Pharisees said. And they were right. And if Jesus can't prove it. Then telling the guy, the poor guy, your sins are forgiven, he's going to go headlong into all eternity and face a holy God without true hope and no security. People ask me all the time, how do you know you're saved? Jesus. That's how I know. I don't know by some feeling. Oh, I know in my heart I'm saved. What do you mean? If you mean feelings, no, you don't. If you know Jesus and believe in Jesus and the power of the Spirit reigns in you because your life is being transformed in Christ because you've turned it over to Christ and He's your Lord and your Master by faith, hey, you know. How do I know? Jesus. Jesus displayed that He was God. He proved it. And His undeniable reigning power shows up right here. Notice what Jesus says. Very quickly, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. (laughs) There it is. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority. What does that mean, authority to forgive sins? He's God. I want you to know that the Son of Man is God. And so he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, take your little bed, your stretcher, and go home. And at once, yeah, no rehab here. No special staging. No curtains. No uh, low back pain being healed. I watched a faith healer not too long ago, so called faith healer, took a man's neck brace off his neck, started moving his head around. The man was in excruciating pain. Just brazenly moving his head around. The guy was in excruciating pain even so much so that I was cringing watching it. And they put the microphone in front of him and said, what was your injury? And he said, my doctor said, I have two severely degenerative discs in my neck. And he named the discs and he said, I'm not supposed to move them or I could be paralyzed instantly. <laughs> How much authority does Jesus have? At once he rose up before them. You know what that took? Everything it took when we saw the leper healed. New bones, new legs, new muscles. Just boom. Instantly. In front of their very eyes. I mean, your blood would run cold, beloved. It would rush from your head to see that. To see creation happen. How much authority does Jesus have? John ten eighteen. He said, I lay down my life on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He who had authority over His own death and resurrection. He has authority over all eternal judgment. You don't believe it? John 5, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He's given all judgment to the Son. Listen, on that day, the Father will be there, but He won't have to say a word because His Son is the judge. All authority for judging every soul. John 5, 27, he gave him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. John seventeen two, he prays to his Father and says, You gave me, the Son of God, the Son of Man, authority over every soul. You know what's frightening about that? When that man got up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God, he was spiritually saved and he was physically saved you know what's frightening about that that means that Jesus in that moment proved that he has authority to forgive and listen if he has authority to forgive then he has authority to withhold forgiveness oh beloved do not make the foolish mistake of imagining that you control those things listen very closely to John 5:21 For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whomever he wishes. It is his will, it is his sovereignty, it is his purpose. In Luke 10, a few chapters later, verse 21, just listen to it. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from those who think they're wise and intelligent, and you revealed them to babes, for it was well-pleasing in your sight, Father, to do so. You hid these things from those who are proud and arrogant and think they can come to God on their own, but you revealed them to Babes, what does that mean? People who come like children. I believe you, Lord. Like this man. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Luke 10.22. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. I don't think you can walk... Any time you want, I'll just wait. Yeah, I'll wait till some crisis. I don't. Know, I'm going to deal with the Lord later. Don't do that. He must cry out for mercy now. You say, well, if He controls it, why cry out to Him? Because He calls you to, and that's how He saves. He saves by drawing you and convicting you of your sin, even in a sermon like this, and have you go to Him and say, "All right, I want to come like that man, in faith, in humility, in brokenness. Lord, save me." And He says He'll do it. He'll do it. Don't just look at the miracle and think, oh, notice verse 26. Oh, we've seen remarkable things today. Look, the text says they were glorifying God and they were filled with fear, saying we've seen marvelous things. It's it's just that wonderful term that means we have have been stunned by the works of God today. But it doesn't say anything about this crowd believing. The man that was healed, he went home glorifying God and we know he was saved This same group was glorifying God filled with fear saying we've seen remarkable things today but we have no indication that any of them believed. Maybe some did. I hope they did. But you know what that tells me? That tells me that you can listen to Jesus teach. You can read the text and see the miracles he did. You can read of his resurrection and you can see believers all around you with resurrection power and you can marvel at that stuff and still say, yeah, well, remarkable, but it's not for me. You ever heard somebody say that? It's good for you, not for me. So you tell that person that their soul is in the hands of Jesus Christ and He has authority to forgive or withhold it. Call them lovingly to cry to Him for mercy, to save them from their sin. And He will. He has the power to deliver from sin. If you're here today and you know Christ, listen, this ought to make you worship. This guy went home glorifying God. Can you imagine when he rushed back to his neighborhood? He probably let the little bed go at some point. (laughs) I'm not taking this thing with me. He said, pick it up and carry it, but I I can't drag that. I don't even want to be remembering that. Look at me. Where's your bed? I don't know. Somewhere back there in the dust at my muscles how did that happen let me tell you let me tell you it's more than just physical muscles it's my heart he, he forgave me of my sin he must have dragged his entire family back to that house because you would wouldn't you is not that what you do when you know you've been saved pray with me Lord thank you for forgiveness thank you for removing the guilt that hangs over us, that was hanging over our hearts. Guilty as charged in every way, even if we just violated one of your holy standards. We're guilty of all of it you've said in your word. Just one. And yet by the time we have taken a few cognitive thoughts In our youngest years, we're already reflecting what we are by nature at conception, bent towards self-worship. Oh God, rescue sinners, even in this room who do not yet know you. Whatever physical infirmity they're experiencing, may they know that's nothing. They need their heart forgiven their guilt removed. And it's removed in you. You paid for it on the cross. Every bitter thought, every evil deed crowned your blood-stained brow. This is the power of your cross. And you have all authority. May we shudder under it. And if you've rescued us, then we just glorify you. We've seen wonderful things from this text. We pray you'd use it today for your glory in the hearts of your people and those that don't know you, to draw them to yourself. For your glory and honor we pray. Amen.